From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Don't worry. Be happy. That's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Sometimes what's needed is a recipe for happiness. Just telling you, would would you mind being happy today, please? You know, it's not going to (laughs) work. So we need to give you the ingredients. Make a good soup. You know, that's Mm -hmm. not enough. How do I make a good soup? Mm -hmm. That is the key. Mayo Clinic stress management expert Dr. Amit Sood's new book, The Mayo Clinic Handbook for Happiness, offers helpful advice to achieving a happier life. Also on the program, hernias have complicated names but are really quite common. Find out which ones require treatment and which ones don't. And cochlear implants bring new sounds to the hearing impaired. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. With us, Dr. David Farley, General Surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Farley, welcome. Nice to have you. Thanks for letting me be here. I know you do all sorts of surgery, but one of your specialties, unless I'm mistaken, is hernia surgery. Yes, I do a lot of them. And a hernia, uh, for the lay person, means what? It's basically a hole. It's a spot that should be closed and tissue pooches through. Sometimes that's an organ, sometimes that's a piece of fat, but it's a hole where there shouldn't be a hole. And it's a hole that something goes through that, and it shouldn't go through there. Exactly. The body's pretty good at keeping things intact, and uh, the hernia allows things to push out. Why does this happen? Why do we get hernias? Lots of different reasons, but uh, most commonly it uh, increases over time, so age is a big factor. Um, we used to think that skinny people or chubby people might be more or less at risk, and we find that that's probably not true. Probably the number one thing is uh, age over time, and then intra-abdominal pressure. If we're talking about belly button hernias or inguinal hernias, sometimes it's the pressure. And that can be caused for a couple different reasons. Those are the two most common types of uh, hernia. The other one I can think of is hiatal. And explain the difference in, in where sure. those three occur. Sure. Holes can happen anywhere. Um, so a belly button hernia, an umbilical hernia, is very common in young uh, kids. Babies will have them, almost everyone. And a couple years later, oftentimes those hernias will be gone because the baby will grow and heal and it's not a problem. The most common hernias in the United States and across the world are inguinal hernias. Um, roughly seven to 800,000 inguinal hernias are repaired every year in the United States. So that's down in the groin? Down in the groin, the connection from the trunk to the leg. And that's when your doctor's checking you, if you're a male anyway, and he always says, turn your head and cough. I, it was a long time before I figured out why I was supposed to turn my head. Yeah. I thought that was part of the test, but he just didn't want me to cough on him. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so in my head, only men get hernias. Do women also get hernias? They do. They do, and lots of different hernias again, but if we're talking about groin hernias, inguinal or femoral or umbilical hernias, about 90 plus percent of all hernias will be in men, but mm. um, eight or nine or 10 percent might be in women. Yes. What's the difference? Why would that difference occur? Well, women uh, are stronger. <laughs> they're the superior gender when yeah, it comes to hernia, yeah. absolutely. I'm um, just thinking it must be muscle structure somehow. You girls are so strong. Yeah, <laughs> big muscles. When we're talking about inguinal hernia, which is the most common, 
in men, we have to have a blood vessel that goes down to our privates, and we have to have a blood vessel that comes back, and we also have, a, have to have a tube that carries the sperm. So there's three things that have to go through the abdominal wall. So when that uh, physician asks you to turn your head and cough, he or she is putting their finger up in that hole where those three blood vessels come out, and over time, that ring, that space will open up and tissue will pop out, and that's a hernia. In women, there's no such need for those vessels to go down, and that ring is extraordinarily tight. And so it's far less common to get an inguinal hernia in a woman. Yep, we've got a lot of pipes that have to come down through that uh, <laughs> hole. And as uh, over time, uh, that hole gets a little bit uh, bigger or uh, weakens, is that how the, the bowel then comes through that hole that's also? A- that's exactly right. Over time, um, coughing, sneezing, putting pressure, things want to pooch out. Um, we can see that. There's some genetic component. We have some families and members that my dad had a hernia and my grandpa had a hernia and now I've got a hernia. It does tend to run in families sometimes, but that's not a key component. We notice that smokers will have more hernias because they're probably coughing uh, more than other folks. Anything that increases the pressure on the inside of the abdomen wants to push out is going to help cause a hernia. Well, that's right. I think just anecdotally, you lift something heavy and you end up with a hernia. Yeah. That's the that's the cartoon version of it in my head. That's right. I mean, all of us have a little bit of a space there. And the more that you're lifting and tugging, the more problems you'd have. Having said that, somebody that's a bodybuilder that's lifting weights all the time, they don't have any higher risk. They're fit and healthy. It's probably obese people probably have a higher incidence, but they're so chubby that the fatty tissue, we don't notice that they have a hernia. When you turn your head and cough and put that finger there, there's fatty tissue. So anything that increases pressure inside the abdomen is going to try to pooch out and cause hernias and make them symptomatic. So the risk factors are uh, being male, uh, being overweight, uh, smoking because of the cough. And then the key thing, of at least the studies that we've done here in Olmstead County, the older you get, the more likely it is that you're going to develop a hernia. And that's where the tissues weaken, and that hole there wants to pooch out and allows that tissue to move through. Is there an age where this typically happens? Uh, the most common um, people that get hernias fixed are between 40 and 60, typically working males, that this is now bothering them. Having said that, if we look at who's getting hernias, at about age 70 or so, it really increases with an incidence at that point. Whether or not people get them fixed or not, that's another choice. What? How do you know if you have a hernia? What would the symptoms be? Now, your doctor may detect it early on by doing the, the cough test, yeah. but how would you otherwise know you might have one? Well, it depends a little bit. Most people if have a belly button hernia. They can feel that little funny little nubbin through the, the umbilicus. But if we're talking inguinal hernia, most people will notice in the morning feeling just fine. And as the day goes on, they'll get sort of an achy sensation in the groin, that connection between the trunk and the leg. And there'll be sort of an achiness. And then over time, they'll notice when they cough or they sneeze, maybe a sudden bit of pain or discomfort. And then further with time, in the shower and washing, and all of a sudden, whoops, what's that lump there? And why is it doing that? That's when they'll get an obvious uh, notation of a hernia. And what that actually is, is a portion of the bowel that's supposed to be up in the abdomen that has actually sneaked through that hole and come outside the abdomen. Partially true. The most common thing that's going to pop through is what's called the omentum, and that's a fatty bit of tissue that all of us have in our in our abdomen that protects us, and it's supposed to uh, plug holes, and that's exactly what it does. So the first thing is usually it's omentum, but over time, bowel can come through there, absolutely. And that has to be difficult to repair if it gets to that point, or is it not? Do you just pull that back through and stitch that hole yeah. up? 
as long as it's not um, the bowel is not part of the the real problem. It's just decided to pop sure. through there. So it's just a matter of fixing a hole, and we're pretty good at fixing holes. Our guest is general surgeon Dr. David Farley. He's an expert on uh, hernias. We'll take a short break, but when we come back, myth or matter of fact, every hernia ever known was able to be repaired. Is that a myth or is that a fact? We'll get the answer when we come back. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest, General Surgeon Dr. David Farley, an expert in the diagnosis and treatment of hernias. So, Dr. Farley, myth or matter of fact? Every hernia needs to be repaired. Is that a myth or is that a fact? That's a myth. Hmm. That's a myth. Not all hernias should be fixed. But that's a little bit different thinking than than previously, isn't it? I mean, didn't you always used to say, uh, physicians used to say, you've got a hernia, we've got to fix it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And why was that? What can happen if you don't fix it? Um, over time, hernias get bigger, typically. You cough, you sneeze, you lift things, and that whole, over time, gravity is going to win and tissue is going to pooch out. And at some point, bowel or bladder or something important inside the abdomen can get through that hole and sometimes get caught and kinked off. Um, if it kinks off the blood supply, that's called strangulation. If the bowel just gets stuck in there, that's called incarceration. And historically, physicians especially were nervous that they were going to let somebody go, a farmer, for 30 years with a hernia, and at some point that they would have a fatal problem with a hernia. And everybody was nervous about that, uh, perhaps from medical legal reasons, but more importantly about patient care. And the data would show that that rarely happens. And so we've been a little bit uh, backing off on the aggression that everything needs to be fixed because we also know that surgery sometimes can cause chronic pain or you can have a bleeding problem or you can have other difficulties. So we're not as aggressive as we once were. And it's the strangulated hernia that you really worry about, right, where the the bowel gets uh, pushed through this hole and its blood supply gets cut off. Then what can happen? then that portion of the bowel that gets no blood supply will die. And uh, at some point, that will mean necrosis, and the tissue pops in the stool. Necrosis means tissue death. Tissue death, exactly right. And uh, it can be a fatal problem. People can have a bowel obstruction or uh, a hole in the bowel, and if it's not urgently or emergently taken care of, it can be a fatal problem. That's because the dead tissue becomes infected? Is that what happens? Absolutely. Septic shock and... um, it's a, it's a bad problem, and it's rare that that's going to happen with a hernia, but there are sometimes some ways to tell that this is a problem that we need to think about fixing this sooner rather than later. So how do you make that decision, whether or not to fix or to leave it alone? It's all dependent individually on the patients that we see. Uh, it might be different for a 99-year-old person or for a 15-year-old person. But when I look at somebody with a hernia, if they come to me and say, hey, my doctor found a hernia, and I didn't even know I had it, I will ask them, does this bother you? Does this pain you? When it's, you cough or you sneeze, is there a problem? And if the answer is no, I don't know that it's there, then I tell them. It's going to take a series of years, likely, before this is going to be a problem. And when it's symptomatic, we can fix it. And oftentimes people will say, well, hey, I'm going on a trip, and I'm going to be gone for six months. I may not get fixed now. We can do that, but they need to understand of all the people that I operate on, the ones that I'm most nervous about that I'm not going to help are people that don't have any symptoms or pain. And so now I fix the hernia. I pat myself on the back. Hey, nice job. I fixed the hernia. And now they immediately have pain. Because it's an operation. They have to recover from the surgery. They have to recover. And the problem is usually these are young men, 20, 30-year-olds. 
that we do this on, and at least 4 or 5 or 6% have long-term chronic pain. And that's a more difficult problem to deal with. So I usually ask people to come back when they're symptomatic because for whatever reason, at that point when I fix the hernia, there's no longer that pain associated with the hernia, and I don't have chronic pain. As opposed to no pain up front and fixing something, I'm putting them at risk at 1 in 25 are going to have long-term problems with that. Is there, we all learned first do no harm, didn't we? Absolutely. And is there a spot in here for a little commentary on watchful waiting? I know over the shows that we do, sometimes watchful waiting is a piece that... Um, I don't know, patients need to get a little more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And I think as as a population, we're not so comfortable with watchful yeah. waiting. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think, you know, as physicians, we need to do a better job of clarifying exactly what it is that we're going to do for you. And um, there are studies out there that show you can watch a hernia and people will do well. But invariably, over time, over two to five to ten years, most people, hey, it's starting to bug me, it's popping out, um, I'd like to have it fixed. And that's a reasonable thing to do. Now, there's many people that might meet their maker for some other reason and never have their hernia fixed or have other problems. And some of these other problems take precedence over a little lump in the groin that bugs me once a week when I sneeze hard. The symptom that you see most commonly with a with a hernia that you might want to repair is pain? Is pain, yeah. Uh, what about size? Even if they don't have any pain, if the hernia is quite large and you can see it and you can feel it, would you repair that one? I'd be a little more uh, likely to, to fix it. Again, if somebody could tell me that this large hernia, and we've seen hernias the size of tennis balls, grapefruits, basketballs, what? it's amazing. Some people Wait, are very... whoa, how, go back. How is it possible that you have a hernia the size of a basketball yeah. and that doesn't affect your quality of your life? Well, if you're um, nervous about having surgery and you're anxious ah. and you never want to have an operation or you're afraid of needles or you never want to be gotcha. put to sleep, You'll put up with a lot of things, and people can wear a truss or an abdominal binder. And um, I've had many patients lay down on the couch or on the bed and uh, in the clinic room and say, Doc, let me show you. I can put it all back in. And they push it back in, and they put their truss back on. And I said, seriously, you're not bothered by this. Not at all. All right, I'll see you next year. So trusses do work. Trusses do work. Got to be careful about a truss. Um, You want to make sure that the contents of the abdomen are inside, and then you put the truss on. So sometimes people need to lie down flat and put everything back in. If things are stuck out and then you put a truss on top of it, you may actually kink off the bowel or some other organ there and actually make it worse. Any other tests that you have to do to confirm that this is in fact a a hernia and not something else? Um, Most times a physical exam is enough to figure it out and more importantly, the, the history of people, what they're saying and doing. Um, people that sneeze and cough and feel a pop and a sudden bulge might not be there for me on a clinical exam, but the story is so good. From time to time, we use imaging studies, CT scan or ultrasound, and those are helpful from time to time, but it's rare that a physical exam with a good history won't let us know this is a hernia. Do you ever find a situation where you think it's a hernia, but you do some imaging uh, and find out it's a tumor? It's rare. It's possible. There are times when um, ladies, especially more than men, might have a varicose vein in the leg um, near the femoral region where the uh, leg uh, meets the trunk. There can be a funny bulge there that we think, hey, is that a hernia? And it turns out it's a blood vessel, and we really don't want to put a stitch in that if we can help it. Um, there are times when people have fatty growths called lipomas. They're benign lumps, and they can happen down in the region where hernias occur. Um, 
but for the most part, it's usually not a massive problem. Uh, there are some rare tumors that you're familiar with uh, that happen on the inside of the abdomen that every now and then pooch out, and we'll see those as a hernia. But usually I'll get a sense that the patient's not feeling well and they've lost weight and it's, uh, there's something else going on. So let's talk about the surgery because it's you've made huge advances in how you do the surgery, the time of hospitalization, et cetera. Tell us what's involved with the surgery. Several different ways to fix a hernia. There's the old-fashioned way of making an incision, sliding down through the abdominal walls, finding that hole, pushing the tissue back in, and then stitching it up. We used to stitch it up, Will and Charlie, maybe with horse hair or steel or things. Um, now it's uh, nylon or uh, proline uh, or silk. But we found that using a piece of mesh is better. It's stronger, it's flexible, it causes less pain. People are back to work quicker, and the recurrence rate is less. So you cover the hole with a with a piece of, of mesh and sew that over the hole? That's exactly right. It's a piece of parachute. It's nylon, basically. And um, in a woman, you can sew the hole shut. In a man, you still want your private parts to work. We've got to cut out a little hole in the mesh and wrap it around. And so it's um, it's dicey sometimes because there's a few nerves there that are important. And then, of course, the blood vessels that are going down to the uh, private parts are important to be careful we don't hurt those. I just was going to have to add that I guess I've been giving this too short shrift over the years. I've thought a hernia repair was just... Not a big deal at all, but the way that you're describing it, it makes it sound like it's a little more complicated, and certainly the side effects afterwards, the recovery from the surgery can be a little bit more than I'm than I've given it uh, credit for. Well, and I think historically we've probably uh, treated uh, farmers from uh, Pine Island and Zambroda and elsewhere <laughs> that grin it and tough it out and get through it, and uh, they'll see me back. That was 20 years ago, limping, walking down the hall. Doc, thanks a lot. That was a great repair. I'm I'm feeling so much better. And nowadays, we've got patient expectations that are higher. And uh, I'd like my hernia fixed today, and I'd like to start work um, two days from now. And we've had people play tennis the day after surgery. I don't recommend that, but that is happening now. <laughs> so uh, it, you talked about uh, the, the operation where you use a piece of mesh. You have to open, make an incision in order to do that? Two ways to do it. One way is to open it. The other way is to do what's called laparoscopic or endoscopic surgery, smaller incisions. And um, you put the mesh sort of on the inside as opposed to on the outside. You can do it with smaller incisions, maybe a little more cosmetic. The nice thing is laparoscopically you can fix two hernias with the same little incisions. And why wouldn't you always do it through the laparoscope? Uh, there's reasons. Uh, some people uh, don't can't be put to to sleep under general anesthesia, and you really need to do that for a laparoscopic approach. Mm. There's some folks that don't want to go to sleep. There's others that are nervous about the newfangled technique. Give me the old thing, Doc. Um, so there's a variety of reasons not to do it. So uh, if you're going to do the open uh, repair, you don't have to go to sleep for that. But if you're going to do it through the laparoscope, through the telescope, you do have to go to sleep? That's right. For the open sure. repair, you could be numbed up. And if it's a medicine, you could talk and tell me all sorts of things. But that's exactly right. All right. Everything you always wanted to know about a hernia, more complicated than you thought. Our guest, General Surgeon Dr. David Farley, thanks for so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Mayo Clinic stress management expert Dr. Ahmed Sood has a new book out. We'll talk with him about the Mayo Clinic Handbook for Happiness. And we'll have the latest on cochlear implants that can restore hearing. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with a Mayo Clinic News Network headline. Tampons, 
A study from Mayo Clinic shows they may be key to detecting endometrial cancer. Researchers say it's possible to detect endometrial cancer using tumor DNA picked up by ordinary tampons. The new approach looks for the presence of chemical off switches that disable genes that normally keep cancer in check. This finding is a critical step toward a convenient and effective screening test for endometrial cancer, which is the most common gynecologic cancer in the U.S. Dr. Jamie Bacham gomez gynecologic oncologist at Mayo Clinic, explains. The challenges with endometrial cancer is that there is not a screening test for it. Even though it's the most common gynecologic malignancy, we don't have a, a pap test for it, uh, a mammogram for it. There's not a screening test that picks up endometrial cancer at an early stage or at a precancerous stage. We wanted to build a screening test around a collection device that was well accepted um, and patient accepted and easy to access. It's estimated that over 50,000 new cases of endometrial cancer will be diagnosed in 2015. The results of the Mayo study are published in the journal Gynecologic Oncology. With today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shah. And I'm Tracy McRae. Happiness. We all seem to want it, don't we? Sometimes that happiness eludes us no matter how hard we try. Is there a formula for happiness or does it just happen? Well, our next guest has just written a book about happiness. He's Dr. Ahmed Sood, a specialist in general internal medicine at Mayo Clinic and an expert on stress management, also written a book on that topic. Well, this new book is titled The Mayo Clinic Guide to Happiness. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sood. Good to have you again. Happy to be here. All right. So your first book, which I just get such a kick out of it when I see it, it's still in the still on the shelves out there. It's about us living with less stress, stress-free living. And now the new book is all about happiness. Isn't it the same thing? Uh, very similar. Uh, we've tried to go a little bit deeper into practices here in this book. We shared a lot of theory, a lot of science, a lot of biology in the first book with some uh, specific ideas. Here we've gotten deeper into, uh, so we have a program uh, called Stress Management and Resiliency Training Program here at Mayo, and we've done uh, several research studies, and we found that in our research studies, uh, the outcome of happiness consistently improved in people who were offered the program. So we thought, well, this, we didn't think about it earlier, but we thought, okay, these skills are actually making people happier. And so we got the idea of tweaking some of these approaches to enhance people's happiness. Is it, isn't happiness a hard thing to measure? Oh, well, there are, there are validated scales. For an individual person, uh, uh, there may be some uh, foggy uh, sort of ideas there, but when you look at 50 or 100 people, and if they say, oh, I'm gloomy to begin with, and at the end of the study, this about 80% of them say, oh, better. life is, couldn't be better. I don't know what else you need. And, and uh, more than that, you know, it's, it's their subjective self-report. And when they say, you know, now I'm getting along much better with my husband and uh, my kids and there's so much more love in my family. I mean, that's, I don't think. That's all you need. That's all what you need. Do you know the main reasons that people are unhappy? 
I mean, is it not enough money? Is it their relationship with their spouse? Is it their kids? What is it? I think we are. The, the main reason is we are looking into the wrong place uh, for happiness. So you as, exactly as you said, uh, when you ask a college graduate, uh, what do they seek? Money and lots of money. And <laughs> and and uh, so many of them are running over to California or uh, you know trying to be cool and famous. None of those things give give you happiness. We thought about we thought these things will give you happiness 30 years ago, but there is now conclusive data that that is not what gives you happiness. What Being cool you, and famous doesn't make you happy. No, it doesn't. A lot of money doesn't make you happy. A lot of money. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, because our brain adapts to the good very quickly. Our and, and our brain starts treating that as a basic expectation. And there's very strong biology to support that. What gives you happiness is relationships, meaningful relationships, pursuing a positive, deep meaning in life where you're able to help others, uh, altruism uh, for many people, some uh, form of spirituality, creative pursuits. Those are the things that give us happiness. And so those sound like the chapters of the books that you, uh, the chapters of the book that you just lifted off. Those so things. we have, uh, well, we have tried to carve a path towards achieving those goals. Okay. See, uh, just telling you, Tracy, okay, you can, would, would you mind being happy today, please? You know, it's not going to work. <laughs> so we need to give you the ingredients. I will try. What makes, you know, make a good soup. You know, that's mm-hmm. not enough. How do I make a good soup? Mm-hmm. That is the key. So we have uh, carved out, we have put together all the key ingredients that we believe joined together to create the soup of happiness. Okay, the book is just out, and the name of the book is? The Mayo Clinic Handbook for Happiness. All right, so we're ready. Uh, what, what are the key elements? What do you tell people in these sessions that you have about how they can be happy? The three core aspects, Tom, uh, in our sessions. The first aspect is we help people learn from a neuroscience and evolutionary biology perspective why are they less happy than they potentially could be. So we discuss a model of the brain where we talk about brain being in focused or default mode. Focused mode is the mode when brain is happy. Default is when your mind wandering. So, for example, have you ever read a book? You read half a page. You say, what was I reading? <laughs> yeah. It happens all the time. Yes. Uh, so I'm sure, I don't know if your wife has ever accused of late that you're not listening as well to her and you, you blank out when she's telling you three things? Has that ever happened <laughs> no. to you? I try to make it look good, though. I pretend <laughs> like I'm listening. I've so, got that down. So during that time, when that is happening, your mind wandering. Your mind is going elsewhere. And when mind is wandering, where we spend about 80% of the time these days, it is generating stress. And that mind wanders because of negativity bias. We focus a lot on negative than positive. We discount the good. We have a frame of comparison. For example, if you were participating in Olympics, if you've won silver versus bronze medal, the one who wins the bronze medal is the happier because he compares with getting nothing. Silver medalist compares with just missing the gold. See how frame of wow. comparison changes everything. So, so all that fascinating. We share with people in about 15 to 20 minutes all that they be, we believe need to know about how brain and mind work. From there, then, we go into attention. And what we do is discuss some surgically placed specific attention practices that can undo a lot of stress in life and that can help them engage with life in a very positive, meaningful way. So, for example, the morning gratitude exercise, the the, the uh, just notice exercise, the three-minute rule when you get back home, how to connect with your family. Uh, and, and, so the, and these are all sprinkles, tiny sprinkles of positivity or meditation, sprinkled multiple times during the day. They only take 30 seconds to two minutes. The total time with our program is only seven minutes of practice during the day. If 
I would love to give money back guarantee that it'll work mm-hmm. for you. Uh, and so the way I see these are these are like if you have a glass full of milk, we don't add more milk to your glass. We add chocolate powder to the milk. <laughs> so to make the whole milk much tastier. And, I, have and, to, I have to say, though, what you said about that uh, uh, when the when you get home from work and everybody's reassembling in your family, you had said that a long time ago when you were on with us. And I started doing that when the kids would get home from school. I would stop what I was doing and walk towards them and say, you're home. And the the difference that I felt yes. and the way that they would start reacting when they'd come in the house it was I was like doing my own little experiment based on something that you had said and it is it's dramatic the they difference didn't, they that it didn't makes. go oh god what's wrong with mom what no they just you know they started walking into the house differently I would watch them walking up the sidewalk I mean it, it just was really dramatic and then also doing that with my husband because sometimes we're like Absolutely. all right shift gears now we got to get everybody off to basketball and to play practice and we just everybody I tried to greet everybody like here we are back together again and it's the greatest thing that's happened all day. And, and it seemed really like it makes a difference. The, the, the yeah. three minutes. The three minute rule. Yeah. yeah. So the, the so basically when you go home and 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 what Tracy was saying is if I am busy improving my daughter, did you do your homework? Why there's so much clutter and and the the laundry is blah blah blah. Then they associate themselves with they associate me with feeling bad about themselves. See, I was feeling pretty good until Dad showed up on the scene, and I don't <laughs> feel good anymore. So next time he comes, I'm I'm going to be in my head, and I'll show I'm busy. And I'll be in some social media, something. Mm-hmm. So I want them to associate me with feeling good about themselves. And the single best thing you can do for your kids is light up when you see them mm-hmm. with your family. Light up. This is what I see many corporate executives, all highly successful people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, when they come, tears come in their eyes when I ask them, tell me the most memorable personal moment. That is when my grandpa lit up when he saw me. Mm-hmm. So don't let that go by. But it's amazing that it doesn't happen. So you have to develop intentionality. You have to, you have to, when you go home, so this is what I do. When I'm in the garage, I check my emails right in the garage before I go home because I know <laughs> uh, there are people expecting me to check my. So when, when I'm home, I'm not hugging my wife and checking emails behind her shoulder, which is what <laughs> was a picture recently. So, and then I just set that intention that I'm going to meet some very special people who I haven't met for quite some time. And so that is the three-minute practice. And there are several other such practices, Tom, that are geared towards enhancing your happiness. And they're all in the book. Right. And the name of the book is The Mayo Clinic Handbook for Happiness, subtitled A Four-Step Plan for Resilient Living. Thanks for joining us once again. Thank you. Up next, restoring the ability to hear. We'll learn more about cochlear implants next. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, imagine what it must be like to never have heard a sound in your whole life. And after having a special surgery, to hear mm-hmm. voices, music, everyday street noises, sounds that most of us take for granted. Yeah, it is remarkable technology. And the surgery that makes it possible is called a cochlear implant. Indeed, some who have received this implant call it the miracle of sound. With good reason. You know, here to talk about cochlear implants, what they are and how they work is Dr. Douglas Sladen. Dr. Sladen holds a doctorate in hearing and speech sciences and is director of the Mayo Clinic Cochlear Implant Program. 
Welcome to the program, Dr. Sladen. Good Thanks to have so you much. with us. I appreciate that. When did cochlear implants come on the scene? How long has this been an option for patients? So last year we celebrated 30 years of cochlear implant work in the United States. Uh, they first were FDA approved in 1994, and um, Mayo Clinic was one of the first centers across the United States to start doing cochlear implants. So we have a long and formidable history in this area. I presume that means that your cochlea isn't working and you have a substitute? And what is the cochlea? Good question. So the cochlea is the snail-like structure of the inner ear. And that is the organ that houses very sensitive little hair cells that are responsive to sound. Over time, from noise exposure and aging and medications, those hair cells can be damaged. Or they could be damaged um, in, from the very get-go, from birth. In those cases, we want to um, bypass those damaged hair cells by using an electrode array that goes into the inner ear or the cochlea. So you can be born with a damaged cochlea or without a cochlea? Exactly. So children uh, are often born with um, congenital hearing loss, in which case they are not able to hear sounds like you and I hear them. They may be able to hear through a hearing aid, but in many cases the hearing loss is so profound that there is no hearing aid strong enough to let them hear speech well enough to develop spoken language skills. So this is really a little electronic device? Is that the way you would describe it? It is. There are two pieces. There's a component that's implanted underneath the skin that has an electrode array that is inserted into the cochlea or the inner ear. And then there is an external piece that is worn outside the head. The external piece has a microphone, uh, a processor, a battery, and a transmitter. That transmitter transmits the power and the information about sound across the skin on a radio frequency to the internal device. That internal device is then powered up and sends the information down to the electrode array that's sitting in the cochlea. Now, those electrodes will start to emit little bits of electrical current. Not a lot of current, just on the order of microamps but enough to drive the neurons to fire. So when the hearing neurons fire... That's the nerve that goes from the ear to the brain. Exactly. That's when we hear sound. And wow. if someone has never been able to hear, I can see if they've lost their hearing gradually, but if they've never been able to hear and you give them a cochlear implant, that's just starting from the baseline for them. That's amazing. That's right. What's that like for those patients? Well, there's there's some information that we need to clarify. For children who are born with hearing loss, if that person never uses hearing aids and never has a cochlear implant and reaches 10, 12, 13 years of age, that's not a good candidate for a cochlear implant. The auditory system has already established its pathways towards the brain. Those pathways are established early in childhood during the first three years. Mm-hmm. So once a child is older... If they have never used a cochlear implant, that wouldn't be a very good candidate. So if we want to implant people that have had hearing loss from birth, we want to do it early. Mm. The earliest that we've implanted here at Mayo is six months of age. We prefer to implant around uh, one year of age, right when um, uh, where the FDA guidelines are. Big operation? It's not a, I guess it's not it depends a, on who's doing it's it. It's not a <laughs> trivial operation. Uh, you know, it certainly requires intubation and sedation. Uh, there is an incision made behind the ear, mm-hmm. and the surgeon will drill through some bone to insert the array into the inner ear. Now, you know, in the, in the scope of surgeries, I would say that it's not as um, invasive because there's minimal blood loss. It does not require a blood transfusion. 
Uh, it's a day surgery. We do it as an outpatient service. Mm-hmm. Um, patients are admitted in the morning and then go home that same day. So who gets cochlear implants more often, infants and very small children or folks who have lost their hearing? Well, in this day and age, as we see so many people entering old age and our elderly population is growing at such a rapid rate, the, hot, the fastest growing number of patients that we are seeing are people over 65 because there's so many entering that, that, that age break. Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> I have to needle you a little bit. Because Put me when, on the list just when, in case. When we started this interview, I turned down my headphones. And oh, we, yes. I always tease Dr. Shives that his are too loud. But over the course of time, it is cumulative and you do lose your hearing. That's right. Wow. So the aging process, noise exposure, medications, all of those things contribute to towards hearing loss in, in older age, as well as our genetics. So some people are born with a predisposition towards developing hearing loss with the aging process. Why would you do a cochlear implant instead of hearing aids? Well, we do a very extensive evaluation uh, first to determine what's our best option. Obviously, we want to choose a non-surgical option if we can. So if the patient can be helped with hearing aids, then that's the route that we'll go. But if we fit them with the best hearing aids and then we test them and they're still not able to understand speech well, then we'll move them towards a cochlear implant. And the cochlear implants work that well? Our outcomes are amazing. Children who are implanted young and early in life, if there are no other coexisting conditions, will develop spoken language skills on par with their normal hearing peers and will be mainstream by the time that they're school age. Unbelievable. Older adults, um, our average adult scores about 65% single word understanding in noise. Now, it may not mean a lot, but it means that with no cues to what's being said, they're able to understand a single word 65% of the time, and they usually come to us understanding almost nothing. Hmm. I had heard, uh, and this is not to toot our own horn, Tom, but I had heard that you would jump at the chance to come and talk about cochlear implants. Why is it that you're so excited for people to know more about this option? When we consider the number of people who are likely candidates for a cochlear implant, there are only about 6% that actually reach the clinic and get a cochlear implant. And the reason is likely due to visibility. People don't know about cochlear implants. They don't know about the benefits of cochlear implants, or they have an outdated idea about who a cochlear implant candidate is. So we don't wait until a person is profoundly hearing impaired anymore. We don't wait until they can hear absolutely nothing. We want to intervene much sooner. So patients that have moderately severe hearing loss, those are patients that we now consider a candidate for a cochlear implant. Now the all-important question, does Medicare pay for this? Medicare does pay for this. Oh, really? Well, let me... 90% um, or... Let me, yeah, there's some some caveats there. it can't be cheap. It's not cheap. Um, And Medicare authorizes uh, cochlear implantation uh, amongst patients that score a certain criteria. Um, how much they reimburse us is actually a different story, but still it's important, even though we don't get a lot of reimbursement, it's not a money maker for Mayo, but we're not in this to make money, we're in this to help patients hear better. And the effects are profound. I mean, it cascades into all aspects of life, your social life, your work life, your your psychological well-being, social, emotional, physical health even. We have about 30 seconds left. Yes. How has this changed over 30 years? How have implants changed in that time? 
probably the, the biggest change has been in the miniaturization of the technology. The first processors were these big body-worn devices that you had to wear on a belt, and the cable would go up to your head, and it was a big, obtruse-looking thing. And now they're miniaturized, and they're compact. Uh, so microchips have allowed us to put all of the hardware into very small pieces. Well, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? And it sounds like there are a lot of people out there who need one of these who just haven't heard about it. That's exactly right. Thanks very much, Dr. Sladen. Dr. Doug Sladen is hearing and speech specialist and director of the cochlear implant program at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, folks. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Do you have a question about health and medicine from one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Deepman, our social media editor, Audrey Castletime. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 